The Ascent of Board Games is a podcast in which we discuss the history and evolution of board game mechanics, concepts, and themes from the dawn of history to today's newest releases. We talk, we laugh, we pick on each other, and we occasionally get things wrong. But we hope to provide both entertainment and education to today's discerning podcast listener, you. Welcome, everybody, to episode 32 of The Ascent of Board Games, where we talk about board games and how they ascend and how it's very difficult to play them when everyone's locked down. I don't want to say that. It's very depressing. Anyway, <laughs> I'm Brian. I'm joined... You want to just do that again? No, no, no. I think it's better to, you know, sort of have that mm. momentary uh, mm. bit of despair mm. coming in. That's fair. It's on brand for us. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that is the nature of how we are. We're all very sad about like, board We're screaming at the infinite void, I guess. I mean, we've been screaming into the void for 32 episodes I mean, now. That's I don't true. know why we would stop now. Hey. Hello, hey. void. <laughs> that void is slightly filled up. Hello, listeners. Yes, there are people out there listening, so that's cool. That's good. Anyway, I'm Brian. I am joined by the usual assortment of folks here who have not been playing as many board games as we would like to. Joe, have you gotten anything game-related happening? Uh, lots of role-playing games, I think, is, is that's primarily good. what I've been doing. And lots of World of Warcraft. Lots of World oh, of Warcraft. Oh, God, they dragged you back in, huh? The I'm World sorry. of Warcraft. Oh, Lord. Okay. Frank, how about you? It's been pop-up dungeon, a lot of Forbidden Lands. We're playing like twice a week. And Forbidden Lands is an amazing role-playing game. I am stunned. I have Forbidden Lands. I got in on their last Kickstarter, and I love the ideas and stuff behind the setting, but after running a long batch of Coriolis, I'm not really that sanguine on the system anymore. I don't know. It seems to work for Forbidden Lands. Just the harshness, the arbitrariness, the capriciousness, and uh, yeah, it fits. I want to go back to Amber now. I'm tired of any randomness at all. For that system, D6 is only six to succeed. It is extremely brutal all the time. And it does feel like a campaign of that. It got very cloying after a while, right? You spend XT trying to get a little better at a thing, and what you do is you get a little better at a thing. Like, infinitesimally small amount is what it feels like. Is that the same system as Coriolis? Fundamentally, yeah. 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 Playing on a D6 system where sixes are successful just felt really random. It is very, very swingy for that. Oddly enough, the players and I don't have an issue with random. We embrace the chaos. In particular, instead of a strict campaign, Forbidden Lands pushes a very sandboxy kind of campaign. So if I need a dungeon, I go to a website, click, and I've got a dungeon, and I draw it out in Dungeon Draft while they're running through it and make up shit on the fly and etc. How about you, Jason? You got anything good in or you've been busy building your mountain escape retreat home? <laughs> well, still working on that. I got my second wave of Tainted Grail stuff that I have basically stacked up on my dining room table and just waiting for me to finish the first wave to <laughs> start playing with that stuff. Board game-wise, I, I did get to play that Godzilla Tokyo Clash game that Frank had mentioned on a previous episode. It was fun. It was cute. The press Brower Hall did a really good job as usual. The art is very appropriate for the content and uh it's fun throwing a tank at a building <laughs> that's that's a great hobby it's always fun throwing a tank at a building yeah, yeah absolutely oddly satisfying and then I, I got a chance to try um if you've ever played any of the five minute dungeon games they've got that new one that came out um five minute mystery that you kind of mm, okay. it's basically Odd. you're you're finding symbols inside of an art card and putting them into a codex to try and determine who the culprit was that stole the thing and just hmm. like the previous game in five to nine minute sessions so it's super easy breezy it was fun lots of panicking and running out of time 
<laughs> so, like, are the symbols not as apparent as yeah. in the other five minutes? They deliberately hide them within the uh. image. So the idea is, you know, one person's entering the information into the codex. Everyone else is like, oh, it's a, it's a triangle with three dots at the top and, and, a, and a circle with a dot on either side. And, <laughs> and, and then the square is filled in. No, no, not. It's an empty square. Oh, no, wait, there's a triangle behind the square. Yeah, it's a lot of that. Oh. Then you check the code on the back of the card. And if it's right, you get to flip over a clue or you get to grab a clue, rather, and see if it lines up with the culprit that you've got. And if it is, you flip it over and it'll say, hey, the person you're trying to find out of these suspect cards, they've got a purse. Okay, great. Eliminating one who doesn't have a purse. Right. And so that sort of thing. Looks fun. Yeah, it, it's, it's real cute. Yeah, it sounds like it's almost got a little bit of the uh, keep talking and nobody explodes vibe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they did a good job where, like, instead of it just being the same game over and over again, they have, like, different missions where it's like, now you have to find two culprits, or now you start this one knowing that one of the culprits has a hat, but now you have less time to deal with. And they kind of mix it up in the different little scenarios, and, you know, they've got easier and hard ones, so we were playing along with that. It's fun. There is a solo mode. I don't recommend it, because it's just like, okay, I'm just staring at a card, and all right, there's a triangle, and there's a circle. All right, am I right? Not, not quite so much fun. <laughs> yeah, it does seem a bit less interesting that way. How about you, Mike, other than the obligatory Arkham Horror? Yeah, I'm working on a custom campaign for Arkham Horror now, which has been a ton of fun, and actually doing that design process on stream so that viewers can Observe get your some insanity input. in real time. And help. <laughs> and mm-hmm. help mm-hmm. has been a ton of fun. Um, other than that, I and I think I might have mentioned this in the last episode, maybe it's just been that long since I've played an actual <laughs> board game. I played Thanos Rising. It's a dice game. It, it was cute. It was cute. That's all I gotta say. If you are just a big fan of Marvel and you need more, this is a game that you could play. Oh, I thought you were going to say, uh, if you're a big fan of intergalactic murder, check this game out. I mean, I'm, I'm in favor of intergalactic murder, let me be clear. <laughs> But, Mike, is it a good tie-in game? It was definitely a good game that had a theming that really <laughs> could have been literally anything. Excellent. That is that is the best kind of answer. The big mechanic there is that there is a wheel in the middle that you set up cards around, and it is split in two thirds. So that I think each of the sections has three cards, and Thanos will face one third of the board so that you cannot interact with that section. But every time you go, Thanos may or may not rotate to a different section. And when he does, bad stuff happens. Other than that, you are just trying to roll symbols on dice to match up to the cards in the section that you're interacting with, and if you match up symbols on a hero, that hero will join you, giving you a special power. If you match up symbols on a villain, you will defeat them, and you win the game by defeating some number of villains, and then you can lose if Thanos collects all of the power gems of Destiny... Power Gems of Destiny. <laughs> yep, you heard Is that the me. Chinese knockoff? <laughs> Give up your nerd card right now, Mike. Oh, I, I lost that years ago. So, Mike, does Santa have to put all these gems in his limitless gauntlet? Is that how this works? <laughs> yes, yes. His gauntlet of unending gauntletness. <laughs> oh, man. Someone on Board Game Geek made their own custom cards from, like, 70s Marvel art, and it is amazing, oh. <laughs> this art. <laughs> I really prefer this to the movie assets. <laughs> this is great. It was a solid game. The theming was real light, but it was fun. I think that has probably been the only non-Arkham horror that I've played. We did get a game of Space Base in. 
We did, didn't we? That game was... Slow. Long. I like the game, but... Maybe not for five? No, not for five. I likewise haven't gotten too much gaming in. I did finally get the long-awaited big box of Tainted Grail, and I fiddled around with that. And like most of the Awakened Realm stuff, I I really like what they seem to be doing with the story, but I'm going to wind up stripping out a lot of other stuff so it's actually playable in finite time, because it does seem like it will take forever and be a little grindy if played as written. I've also gotten notification that Sleeping Gods is going to be shipping shortly, and I'm very excited Double, about yeah, that. yeah, totally. I can't wait to maybe play some of these games with you again someday. Yeah, that would be that would be a lovely thing. And the other thing is, again, not very useful until we can get together again, but my big Omni gaming table from Game On is in the finishing room. It's going to be the first table they ship out this year, so uh, I'm, I'm expecting to have it around the end of the month. Nice. And that's going to be super cool. That's cool. And someday I will have people in my house again to play games on it. As God is my witness. <laughs> games? I'm not sure that I follow. Well, get ready, because we're going to be talking about games today, because that's, in theory, what we do. Specifically in this case, we're going to be talking about roll and write games. And this is another one that, in keeping with our traditions, seems like a fairly simple definition, but actually took about four hours of chat discussion and a lot of email threads going back and forth before we could sort of agree with what we were talking about. <laughs> I think by the end we had to sacrifice a virgin. It was a lot. Yeah, yeah was blood the... was actually spilled for this one, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> Wait, there were email threads? Well, oh, yeah, man. we didn't want your input on some things, so we just put it in email. You were included on the threads. You just never read them. Oh, God, no. Why would I check email? That sounds like a lot of work. Right. I know. It's like stone tablets for you, isn't it? Exactly. So anyway, what we eventually decided on for what we're going to talk about in terms of roll and write games is there's some kind of random determination each turn when a thing happens. The game state changes each round. Either you're writing things down or you're putting things on a pegboard or marking things on a whiteboard or whatever to sort of change where you are. They're generally pretty quick, pretty simple, relatively small slash portable. And most of them can be played by really any number of players. Whoever's turn it is is basically getting the roll or the card or the action or whatever, and then any number of people are doing stuff on their own board. It's sort of multiplayer solitary, so that is generally what we're doing. We've got a number of games here that sort of skirt the edges in one category or another, and honestly, we've got another related episode that's probably going to come up in the future. Uh, But that's our general guidelines here. And we're going to start with a game that was formalized in the early 20th century, but actually is considerably older than that. Really? I mean, the the concept of the game dates back to the, the early 16th century. Oh, I see the early 1500s. Yeah, which is the 16th century. That's that's how the math worked. <laughs> 20th century oh, was sure. the 1900s. It's... Whatever, Brian. Ooh, I get to say an Italian name? I'd be so excited. <laughs> oh, God, this is going to be great. I'm looking forward to it. Tell us about it, Joe. Bingo. Began as a game called, and I quote, Logico del Lotto d'Italia? Probably pretty close. The Game of Lotto of Italy. We're very sorry. Nope, not at all. I, I, I nailed it. I don't understand why you would apologize I'm very at all. Sorry. Don't apologize. Never apologize. <laughs> Always forward, never back. You'll have a five by five grid up. You and a bunch of blue haired old ladies. You and a bunch of, yes, exactly, blue haired old ladies. And a central caller will be drawing out bingo balls from a list of 75 balls. The letters are mapped to a set of numbers, right? So B is mapped to 1 through 15, I is 16 through 30, N is 31 through 45, G is 46 through 60, and O is 61 through 75. And your goal is to get a 
connected line from one side of the board to the other side of the board, right? So horizontally, vertically, or diagonally across the primary diagonals. And then if you get that, you yell bingo, and you have one bingo, and you win bingo. <laughs> yes, which is generally a small number of dollars and possibly a toaster. <laughs> As it's played that today. That is true. It's weird that the box includes its own toaster. <laughs> I'm looking at the Wikipedia article, right? One of my favorite sentences here was, printing a complete set of bingo cards is impossible for all practical purposes. If one trillion cards could be printed per second, a printer would require more than 17,000 years to print just one set. So you completionists out there should probably stay away from this mm -hmm. game. No, what I'm hearing, Joe, is they need a deluxe edition. <laughs> Ooh. What is a little weird here is that the classic 5x5 bingo we know is actually a designed game designed by Hugh Ward, published by ES Low Company. Came out of the 20s and 30s with uh, Hugh Ward playing this game called Beano at various carnivals. Mostly it was played with little beans to mark the grid. My personal favorite version, which I got to play in kindergarten, because I'm guessing bingo is associated with gambling, is Loteria which is a Spanish-Mexican version, which uses a 4x4 grid. And these awesome cards, which are like the devil, the moon. <laughs> and the illustrations, if you look at a, one of the decks for it, are great. It sounds like you took bingo and combined it with like a tarot. Yeah, but it's one of the more traditional versions. The reason that this comes up in this episode is like one of the great filters of roll and writes as we were discussing them was that with a roll and write you can play with any number of players. Unsurprisingly with bingo, there is a limit to the number of total players. Well, yes, if you add 5 billion players a day, right. then it will take you 170 years or whatever. Right. So Joe, <laughs> as we approach infinity number of players, what happens to the mechanics of the game? Well, so you do see that, for example, if roll three required a number set of B10, I16, G59, and O69, there are 33 quadrillion winning cards in the total set of bingo cards. I am so glad that that exists. And just so our listeners know, we're going to have an extra four-hour <laughs> episode of Joe describing the mathematics of bingo available to our patrons. It's fascinating, actually. <laughs> So there are 552 septillion bingo cards. Okay. <laughs> or 5.52 times 10 to the 26 bingo cards. Well, I just love the fact that, like, at its core, this isn't even a game. No. <laughs> like, you aren't, there's no strategy or There are no decisions making. involved. <laughs> but you get a toaster. <laughs> you definitely get a toaster. <laughs> I will say there's a great review of Bingo on Board Game Geek, which basically describes it as the first Euro game. You have individual <laughs> player boards, multiple paths to victory, no downtime, and there are basic and advanced versions. There you go. So speaking of Edwin S. Lowe, I think Mike was going to talk to us about another game that we argued about extensively before deciding to include it on this list. Yeah, I'm going to call this next game kind of the genesis to the discussion of uh, really the sticking point as to why coming up with this list was so difficult because according to the qualifiers that brian listed at the top of the episode yahtzee which was originally made in 1956 from the eslo company and milton bradley and was also designed by edwin s Lowe. yahtzee fits as a roll and write and i'm gonna say that it definitely is because you Roll something, write something down. And it can technically be played with an infinite number of players. You wouldn't do it, but you technically could. Right, Brian? In that case, Dungeons & Dragons is a roll and write. Because you roll something, 
you write down what damage you did, and you could theoretically have an infinite number of players, but you shouldn't. I'm done. That wasn't a serious suggestion, Carol. <laughs> Brian, I will come through this microphone at you. Dungeons and Dragons is my favorite role, right? That is true. <laughs> okay, so I am convinced that Yahtzee is definitely a roll and write. I mean, a random determinator dictates what you do on your turn. You pick up dice, you throw them, you can set some number of those dice to the side and re-roll the other ones. Then, after doing that typically three times, you keep what you end up with and you write some score down on a pad. Now, the purest form of that is you are looking for specific sets. Like, you need one, two, three, four, five, they're straight. You need doubles. You need just sixes, just fives, just fours, just threes, just twos, just ones. There have been a near infinite number of variations on Yahtzee. We could almost do an episode specifically on Yahtzee clones. Write us if you want to hear that. Mike could do an episode just on Yahtzee clones. I <laughs> definitely do a Yahtzee clone episode. I'm going to be sick that day. But I mean, even the ones that aren't technically Yahtzee clones, that concept of roll some dice, then choose and re-roll some of them, then choose and re-roll some of them is everywhere in dice games. Yeah, and I can see why. We've talked about how games mitigate randomness before, and I think that that is just a very simple, very easy way to give the players some sort of control over randomness. This, I think, is the quintessential roll and write. Quintessential? Really? Is that the word you're going to go with? The purest distillation. The point is, while it's not a great game in modern terms, it has spawned a huge variety of games that enhance those mechanics and build on it. And like Mike was saying, if you use the term roll and write to a, I don't want to use the term layperson because that sounds snooty, to a non-gamer, that's probably the sort of thing I'm going to think of. I don't really feel like it's a roll and write in the sense that, you know, the game industry uses it today, but I think it's certainly enough of a progenitor that we needed to include it. Yeah, I mean, it, it, most people have experienced it in some way, shape, or form. I, I was looking at some of the stats on it, and this just sounds like an impossible number to me, but supposedly... The current uh, license holder, Hasbro, claims that they sell 50 million of these things a year, which seems like we would just be buried under <laughs> Yahtzee games by this point. A year? That's what they claim, a year. I'm like, that can't be right. I mean, that's got to be worldwide. I wonder if they count, like, digital downloads as part of that number. That's entirely possible. Oh, and license versions. There's probably, you know, Shrek Yahtzee and Hunger Games Yahtzee. And... <laughs> Hunger Games I'm in. Let's that's, that's do that. I'm in. Let's do Hunger Games Yahtzee. <laughs> All right, we found a, a version of Yahtzee Joe wants to there play. Go, Let's yeah. do it. I'm going to make the brave and daring <laughs> oh, statement God, here we go. that some of those Yahtzee-like games are good. I mean, one of my favorites in a game that I will be more than happy to play with anybody who asks is Roll Through the Ages, which is, what if Yahtzee was a civilization game? While you can see the roots of Yahtzee in there, there's an awful lot more going on in okay, there. Okay, so I have a question. The example game you just brought up isn't on either this list or the Everyone Benefits list. Uh, because I was saving it. I was saving it for our Yahtzee cards. <laughs> the list that you're, you're going to do literally by yourself because it's so boring? <laughs> I'm in. I can, I'm in. I can yeah, do Yahtzee, Yahtzee Clones, Clones episode. I will explicitly play this game I just found, Battle Yahtzee Aliens vs. Predators. <laughs> I want to talk about that. 
battle Yahtzee. Jason, you can talk about vengeance too. Oh, oh God, that's a really good oh, point, God. actually. He's yeah, winning every round. Oh, no. There is going to be a Yahtzee clothes episode. <laughs> I'm sorry, ladies and gentlemen. Right, Run, unsubscribe now, and save yourself. Cancel the Zoom. <laughs> One All for themselves. <laughs> Uh, yes, well, anyway. So, uh, really, the first game, I think, is is a roll and write. Kind of the classic, very simple. You, everyone grabs a pad, someone grabs some dice and rolls them, and everyone writes something down based on it. Oddly enough, it wasn't published until much later. It's called Solitaire Dice by Sid Saxon. Originally, this was published in the classic book Gamut of Games, which is something I think everyone should read. There's so many amazing thoughts and games in there. We've referred to it many times on this show, and it's it's well worth trying to find a copy. Oh, yeah, totally. In this case, Solitaire Dice is a solitaire dice game, which sounds weird. At the end of it, they describe, oh yeah, you can play this multiplayer. Just, you know, roll one set of dice and everyone writes down. In this case, you take five dice, you roll them, and then everyone separately interprets the dice as two pairs of two and a throwaway die. You then have a score sheet in front of you that has 2 through 12, the sums of two dice, and then a 1 through 6 for your throwaway dice. There's scores on the 2 through 12 ranging from 30 to 100. The 2 and the 12 are 100, and the 7 in the middle is a 30. And basically you interpret, you make little check marks next to each of the number pairs you do, and then a mark for whatever die you threw away. Your game ends the eighth time you mark a particular die pip as your throwaway die. The score is where things get tricky because you'll have also have a bunch of marks by your pairs. If you've got a zero in one of those, you know, two through 12, that's worth zero. If you've got a one through four on one of those sets, that's minus 200. Ooh. You know, if you're going to commit to a number, you got to commit to a number. Yeah. And then each roll above five is worth whatever the value of that is. And that's actually the game. Pretty simple. You can kind of see where it's going. And that was actually published in sort of a boxed version in 2011 under the name Extra. Yeah, after Roll and Rights became popular. <laughs> Even though, yeah, Go it's figure. pretty much a progenitor, yeah. There's a game called Word Nerd, which came out in 1979, published by Hasbro. They don't care who designed it, so they didn't tell us. And it's a crossword game. Everyone gets a slightly different crossword grid, which pretty much prevents that whole uh, duplication thing happening. And someone rolls a big 12-sided die that has two or, I think, three letters on it. And everyone writes down a letter, one of those two letters, in their crossword grid. And basically, it points like Scrabble, you know, for basically completing actual words in your crossword grid. Okay. And do they have to be like, there's a six-letter word here and a four-letter word here? Or is it kind of free? Exactly. Form? The grid is actually completely filled. Completely filled with all the blocks. You've got a four-letter word down here, a five-letter word across here, etc. Okay. I mean, that's kind of it. There's not much else you can say about that one. But early and unusual because I think it's our only word game. I think you're correct. Yeah, and I don't see that used for words a lot. I mean, we could talk about word Yahtzee if Mike wants to. <laughs> oh, no, yeah, no, good no, no, you got to save it. You got to save it. This is happening, y'all. <laughs> Joe, tell us about something else, please. I refuse. No, no, no. This episode ends here. We need to stop empowering Mike, guys. Okay, fine. Let's just chill out, calm down, play a nice game of Take It Easy. So Take It Easy 
released by Spears Games by Peter Burley, released in 1983, is pretty straightforward game where you have a grid with has 19 hexagon spaces on it, and then you have 27 hexagon tiles. So for example, someone might say 987, and on one of your tiles, it will have a line with a 9, a line with an 8, and a line with a 7 crossing the tile. And then you get to look at your grid and decide where that's going to go. There's a central caller, and you do that call over and over and over again. Right? So you're only going to use 19 of your total 27 tiles. And of course, you don't know which until you get them. And you don't know which. You have to adapt to the calls that happen during the course of the game. You only score points if the number line goes from one side of the board to the other side of the board. It's kind of it's a centrally packed hexagon board. I don't know what the best way to describe it is. We'll put a picture in. It's basically a row of three, a row of four, a row of five, row of four, row of three. Looks like a settler's grid. Yeah, it looks like a settler's grid. I think it's a good yeah, a good way to describe it. So right, you get a nine eight seven and you'll pick some spot on your board for that. But the only way the nine scores is if the nine line goes from one side of the board to the other side of the board. Then you score that nine. I think if you score it nine times the number of yeah yeah yeah. the number of spaces times the value so obviously nine is very high scoring right potentially right if you get it across the center line that's nine times five that's a lot of points right but it's also harder to pull that off whereas a row of three there's like three different numbers for each of the vertical and the two diagonal lines yeah it's one five nine two six seven and then three four eight it looks a little bit like bingo because you've got one person who's calling out the next tile and then everyone groans as, you know, it ruins all of their carefully laid plans. It's good for big numbers of players. The Oasis of Fun, which is a convention in Atlanta that we all go to when it happens, and hopefully it'll be happening again soon. Cannot wait. Traditionally, does a big game of Take It Easy. And even though it's not, you know, a particular favorite game, it's usually a fun way to get everybody together. And there is a lot more skill than there at first seems, because there are a couple people that pretty consistently win those. Mm -hmm. I think of all of the games on our list, for whatever reason, the spatial arrangement aspect of this game hurts me. Like, (laughs) physically causes me pain. I suck at spatial arrangement to begin with, Mm -hmm. but like... I'm like, this is going great. And then I look down at my board at the end of the game and I'm like, how did I do so terribly? (laughs) Why did I score one point? How is that even possible? (laughs) Yeah. Like, I think in the first time I played this at the Oasis of Fun, having never even heard of Take It Easy before, and the time came to start this and and I'm like, what the fuck is happening right now? (laughs) Yeah, I think I scored like a third of what anyone else in the room scored it was real bad that's your first time you know these things happen what does impress me about take it easy is that i've played in a game of like 300 to 400 people once and you know typically there's 100 people in some of the games we play at these conventions and there won't be duplicate high scores generally there's one winner i've only seen one case where two people had a tie and they had different boards Joe, can we do the analysis on how many combinations of tiles there are in a Take It Easy game? Oh, I mean, like, it's easy. I'm sorry. It's 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 27 pick 19. Quick, to Wolfram Alpha. 2,220,075. Now, that's small because that's only the that's only the combinatorics. That's how many tiles you have. But then how are they arranged? It's a it's a much bigger number than that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, math. I withdraw the question. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's obscenely high. <laughs> I think it's times 19's factorial. 
Oh, yeah, you're right. Jeez, that's a lot. Yes, okay. It is very many. <laughs> well, for us, I understand, just understand 27, pick 19 times 19 factorial. It's like, whoa, 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 buddy. <laughs> Calm down. In a lot of cases, because of that random determination, a lot of the roll and write games can be broken down mathematically like that, so... It doesn't help you do well at them, but it, it does no, tell you the combination. <laughs> oh, come on, Wolfram Alpha. We can let that one go. No, now no, it's no. going to happen. You, you <laughs> set Joe down Now I'm going to figure out how to make Wolfram understand the thing I'm asking it to do. All right, well, while Joe's doing that, I'm going to talk about a pair of games... Okay, I got it, oh, I got okay. it, I got it, I got it. Okay, oh. <laughs> so it's uh, 2.7 times 10 to the 23, or 276 trillion possible combinations. Oh, okay. Well, that's, that's less than bingo. So, uh... <laughs> give me another, Joe. No, don't. An- don't another what? <laughs> don't give him any more, for the love of God. I'm keeping Wolfram Alpha open, because apparently I'm going to need it more today. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so next I'm going to talk about a pair of roll and write games that involve neither rolling nor writing. These are Fitz, which was released in 2009 by Ravensburger, a Reiner Knizia design, and then Bits, same publisher, same designer in 2011. And these are, again, what I'll call that kind of bingo-style setup, where you have one player who, in this case, flips over a card to reveal a particular Tetris piece, a a tetromino, although they come in different sizes. And then each player has an identical board, and they basically take that piece, Tetris-style, slide it down the board at the bottom, and the objective is to meet certain patterns or cover certain spaces, leave certain spaces uncovered. So it's basically the thing where everybody is getting the same pieces in the same order, but making a bunch of different decisions on how they're laid out that result in the way the score changes. Bits is similar, except that they're just always two squares in a row of different colors, and what you're trying to do is make color patterns. If you enjoy that sort of Tetra-style spatial arrangement, i.e. if you're not Mike, each round after the first adds more combinations. There are spaces that will be penalties if you leave them exposed. There are certain pairs of spaces that only score points if you've got both of them open. And you've got the whole traditional Tetris thing where you never get the right piece when you need it. Right. For reasons that are not entirely clear to myself, Mm -hmm. I spent about a year... God, time is irrelevant and illusion, Mm -hmm. but I think it was between 2018-19 playing Tetris. Perhaps to become better at spatial arrangement games... I think I would be much better at Fits and Bits these days than when we first played it. That sounds plausible. I have seen you stream your share of the new Tetris game, which is freaking gorgeous if you folks haven't seen it. That game is so pretty. I bought it for the Quest. Oh, in VR, it's amazing because all this stuff's just twirling around you. I would be interested to see, actually, if we played Fits again, if it has demonstrably increased your ability to fit those little things together. That is an experiment we should do someday. For science. 2009 is really where we start getting into the roll and write. The name really is probably around 2014, 2015. But Schmidt basically started publishing one or two roll and writes a year. And you'll hear that name come up occasionally. In this case, Mosaics came from 2009. Schmidt Spieler, Christoph Tisch. And it's one of the early little small Schmidt boxes with what's definitely a roll and write. So in this one, the person rolling gets a choice. You have a bunch of dice with circles, X's, and triangles. Kind of a perverse, kind of ESP-looking game. And everyone has a big old grid that they basically are going to write those on. 
The person rolling then organizes their four dice containing ESP symbols into a tetra shape or a quatra shape, since there are only four. Everyone has to put that shape into their grid. They can reorient it, rotate it like Tetris, but it has to have the same symbols. And basically at the end of the game, every group of five or more gives you points based on the size of the group. And well, that's kind of the game. Very simple. But one thing you do get here is the person rolling gets a choice, which I think is kind of a first here. Yeah, we will see that again. A lot. But yeah, it is interesting that you're deciding the combination of images and layout that will work well for you and everyone else just has to suck it. Yep. All right, so the next game that we're going to play is actually one of my non-gamer family favorite games, and this is Quix, which was made in 2012 by Nurnberger, Spielkarten, and Verlag, and was designed by Stefan Biddorf. Nailed it. Nailed it. Quix is a game that is very similar to Yahtzee, but with some very important differences. Unlike Yahtzee, when the active player rolls the six dice, everybody gets to do something with them instead of just the active player. The active player is going to choose one of the two white dice and one of the four other colored dice and sum them up to mark down one of the boxes on the four colored rows of their player pad. And those rows are labeled 2 through 12, and they go in from left to right on two of the colors, from right to left on the other two. The other players are going to sum up the two white dice that were rolled and mark off any of their boxes on any row. You're going to continue that play until one person has five boxes marked off in every row of their gamepad. And then you sum up the the rows that you've got, apply a multiplier based on the the number of boxes you have in a row, because you can have more than five. And that is part of the decision that you're making in the game. Part of that strategy is like, hey, if I go seven in this row before I lock it down, I'm going to get a bigger multiplier, but also somebody else might end the game before I can do that. And then if you can't mark something down, there is a negative five penalty that you can take. And it's a fun, cute little game. It fits in a pocket and uh, it travels really well. Again, not themed heavily at all. It's just straight up math, but this is a good one. When you look at a game like Yahtzee, that just making that one little twist of like, hey, everybody gets to play simultaneously mm-hmm. makes it infinitely better. It's hard to call any of these games that we're discussing here particularly revolutionary in terms of what they're doing, but there's definitely some good stuff here. This is a type of game where we are seeing things evolve and combine the mechanics. And I think we see that a lot as we progress through game development, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I almost see these abstract games with very little theming as almost like proofs of concepts. Oh, yeah. Because, like, you take a game like Quix, which is a solid, mathematically stable game with absolutely no theme, and then you get designers that look at it and say, what theme could I use to improve upon this? And I think that these games, while not exciting or revolutionary, are definitely important 
stops on the way to games that we know and love. Yeah, I would agree with that. True, uh, which is a nice lead-in for our next game, which is the first on our list to have a theme. <laughs> Be still my heart. Only took eight. It's not years. much of a theme. <laughs> Good point. Rise of Augustus and Via Magica, Via Magica, are effectively the same game. They're both published by Hurricane, both designed by Piello Mori, and one is a reworking of the other. That's 2013 and 2020. And the first is Roman, decorated. I mean, the theme is really light. It's ultimately an abstract game. And Via Magica is, you have basically little magical ingredients that you're doing stuff with to open portals. But in both games, you have cards. And each player has three cards. So this is your unique board. And the game is basically advanced bingo. But again, you have three cards. And each of them will have a number of ingredients across the top from two to six ingredients. And there are six different types of ingredients. In your bingo bag, there's a distribution of like six whites all the way down to one black, two red, etc. So there's a one through six uneven distribution of your bingo tiles. But again, only in six flavors with a couple of wilds. The caller basically pulls out a chip and everyone who wants can put a crystal on one of the cards. When the card fills, it is removed and replaced with another card from the bank at the top. Cards have points, one-shot, or permanent powers. And that's kind of your game. There's a couple little twists going. Obviously, the uneven distribution is a big thing here. Some of the powers are unusual. Some of them might let you treat like all red tokens as wilds and be able to place them anywhere. One of the more important ideas is that you only have, you start with seven crystals. So you have basically have like seven bingo chips that you can use to place on your cards. If you don't fill a card and get those chips back into your pool of use, you have to kind of take one from an existing card that's sitting there placed. So you've really got to focus on which cards to do first, as well as picking cards from the bank you know, that give you a decent spread of possibilities for actually getting to place crystals. So it's sort of a choose-your-own-bingo card thing. <laughs> choose-your-own-bingo card. And yeah, and your thing's consisting of three bingo cards. Some will let you, you know, immediately add crystals to other cards, which will help you populate a tricky card, but be worth fewer points. And then it's just points at the end. There's some, if you get three green cards, you get a bonus, and there's some face-up bonuses in the middle, but that's actually pretty much it. It really is... Bingo for gamers. Okay. And it is actually a game, unlike bingo. <laughs> There's a bingo for advanced gamers called Ecos, which is designed by John DeClaire, you know, the guy who did Space Base. Oh, okay. That adds a whole board in the middle of the table, which you grow a hex board with animals, and you're basically playing populace, <laughs> moving animals around on the board to score points, and adds, you know, an entire second complex layer to this game. So... I can mention it, but it really is too complex to count. Rise of Augustus via Magica are simple enough. I've played Rise of Augustus. I've not played via Magica. They're the same. Really? When you are saying that it is bingo for gamers, you are definitely not wrong. But I like, and again, like you said, this goes to that point where it's like somebody took bingo, very bland, mathematically sound game, and added a theme to it making it infinitely better. Well, I mean, it's not just the theme. It's like you've also got more meaningful decisions. It sounds like there's a lot more tactical play than there is in something like Bingo, which by definition doesn't have any tactics at all. It sounds, you know, oh, advanced Bingo. Yeah, right, whatever. 
But if you like roll and writes, it kind of has that feel and it's curiously addictive, bizarrely addictive. It also plays, you know, up to six with the base set, which is nice. And it plays simultaneously, of course, mostly. The next game, Rolling Japan, is I think the game that made me aware of the concept of roll and write. I think that that phrase started creeping into consciousness at this time, at least mine. Uh, so in 2014, Okazu Brand, designed by Hisashi Hayashi, published Rolling Japan. And there's a whole bunch of rolling games now, if you look at them. But they're basically geographical maps. So a few variant rules. The basic game, though, has you take a map of Japan divided into provinces, prefectures, and each of them are in different colors. You have seven dice in a bag representing basically all those colors. And I think one of them's a wild instead. The roller pulls two dice out of a bag and rolls them. You then can write down your die on a prefecture that matches that color. The real restriction here is that adjacent regions cannot differ by more than one. Ah. And you have to spread this all through your entire grid. And that's really the game. It becomes about trying to figure out, oh, that's close. Okay, I can make a four or five there if I get a four or five. And you're limited on how many dice you can throw away before you start having to put X's in some of the regions, which are, of course, negative points. Scores are really close in this game and fairly small because it's basically the number of regions you actually get successful. It uses colored dice, which again, I think we saw in Quicks. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it's a actually fascinating little game. You're probably not going to want a bunch of different games on this list, but everybody probably ought to have one or two in their collection for filler games or stuff when some less hardcore gamers show up or just to get some variety in. That's what I use skulls for. <laughs> Sure. Yeah, taken out of context. That's, yeah, uh... yeah. No, it took me a minute to parse that. I'm like, oh yeah, skulls. That's a that's a game, which is a good game. <laughs> now things are real grim at Joe's house. <laughs> it's been a dark year, folks. <laughs> Should I tell you that when we moved into this house, there were two box marked skulls? <laughs> what was in them, Frank? <laughs> they weren't mine. They were Sandy's. Oh, oh, I thought I thought you had found them at the house. That actually makes much more sense. No, 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 no. We took them with us. Okay. Yeah, no, that makes that makes a great deal more sense. Did uh, did you have movers and did they ask any questions? <laughs> Not more than, hey, where do you want this box of uh, skulls? <laughs> I do own this next one, and I think it is a terrific game, even for people who are gamers. And a weird ass song. <laughs> Yeah, so, so what Mike's referring to is a game called Number 9. It's either spelled out or, for whatever bizarre reason, NMBR9. It's how all the kids type it these days. It's edgy, okay? Sure. sure. Uh, released in 2017, and I think it was released in the U.S. by Z-Man Games, created by Peter, oh, I guess it's Weichmann? Weichmann? And, and, you know, we're going back to having absolutely no theme whatsoever. Numbers are a theme, shut up. Sh sure, sure. <laughs> Wait, this has been a math-heavy episode, I've noticed. <laughs> If it makes you feel any better, anyone who's not enjoying all the math, we haven't played a single game in this list that has minis, so it's really hurting me in my soul. <laughs> I mean, I can release a Yahtzee clone with minis, Jason. I mean... Ooh, guys, what if in our bingo Kickstarter, instead of having markers or pens, we had minis? Yeah, you have an individual mini that you put on each number. Yeah, done. I'm in. Uh -huh. I'm in. I'm in. Oh, man, let's get Seaman on this. They'd love to have 4,000 billion <laughs> minis they could sell you. Anyhow, so back to number nine. The game's pretty simple. You have 
10 digits, you have 0 through 9, that have been kind of forced awkwardly into Tetris-like shapes. <laughs> and every round, you'll be flipping it from a deck of cards. There's two cards for each of the numbers. And when that card gets flipped, you have to place that number somewhere in your you know, personal space. The idea is you're trying to stack these things to score points. Anything that's stacked on the bottom level scores zero points. Anything that's stacked up one level above that, you take the, the value of that number. So let's say it was a five, and you multiply it by how high your stack is. So it was the first level above the bottom, you get five points. If it's on the second level, you get 10 points and so on and so forth. There's a couple of placement rules. When you place anything, it has to be adjacent to another piece, right? Another number. Also, when you place, you can't have your new number over any empty space. So that becomes pretty challenging when you have something like a zero on your bottom level and it's got a big empty gap of two spaces in the middle of it. Every round, you're flipping over a new card. Everyone has to place their number. They're trying to adhere to all of the placement rules and they're also trying to maximize their points by getting the highest numbered pieces as high as they can while uh, you know overlapping two pieces and not overlapping empty space. I apparently am now going to be the worst person at spatial relationships now that Mike's a Tetris master. Uh I am god-awful at this game. I suspect I would get soundly defeated by any one of you on this, but it's a a real simple game to pick up, and it's kind of a nice filler game in between uh, some headier materials. Yeah, I like this one. The fact that they're making the numbers into a part of the gameplay and not just the scoring makes it interesting. I don't know... If there was a lot of detailed analysis as far as figuring out how is a nine sufficiently harder to play to make it worth that many more points. But, you know, it's another one of those fun, simple way to play, and I quite enjoy it. I mean, like Jason said, the numbers have been, I would argue, elegantly (laughs) smashed, possibly with a hammer or some sort of power tool, let's say, (laughs) into specific Tetris-like shapes. That seems so intentional that I would find it hard to believe that they did not do a fair amount of playtesting to see, well, this is just harder to play than this. The thing is, I don't know how many options they had as far as the way they had those arranged. Because, you know, if you're doing, you know, what is it, like a four or five high by three or four wide grid, you have kind of limited options as far as what you're going to do there. Yeah, the number three hurts my soul every time I look at it. I'm like, oh, jeez, what did you do to it? Yeah, it's, it's three's had a rough week. <laughs> so the next game on our list, I'm actually surprised that this is the first dice game version of an actual game, which I think does have some roll and write mechanics in it. But this is uh, Castles of Burgundy. This game was made in 2017 by Allele Games and was designed by Steppenfeld and Christophe Toussaint. Nailed it. Has a very similar aesthetic to the Castles of Burgundy game. The map is almost identical, except when you get your board, it is completely filled out with tiles that you would be laying in the full game. Each of those tiles are color-coordinated, because every color has specific rules that you must adhere to when filling in their number. And then, just like in Quicks, there is a uh, white... Oh god, no, it's even more complicated than that. <laughs> it is two white dice, two colored die, and then a timer die, which dictates how long the game will go. 
the active player will throw those five dice, and that players will choose some combination of white dice and colored die that they can apply to their board. And if a if an hourglass is rolled, they will mark off the timer. And so you kind of get like a variable game length going on. This is, I think, a great distillation of the actions you are taking in Castle Burgundy down to a, I'm going to say it, Yahtzee glow. <laughs> I guess you're not really re-rolling the dice, so maybe Yahtzee clone is not the best description for yeah, this. it's not a Yahtzee clone at all. I think of all of the games on this list, this is the one game that I want to play because I remember really enjoying Castles of Burgundy. I mean... I would probably rather just play Castle of Burgundy, but, you know, it's certainly not a bad translation to it if you want something that's a little quicker and faster playing. Oh, I did forget to mention that once you fill out specific spaces on your Castles of Burgundy dice game sheet, you also unlock special powers that can be used. And so it's like when you complete a monastery, you unlock a monk, and then at a future turn, you can use the monk to, say, change the color on any of the color dice. To get some dice mitigation as you go. That's groovy. The next game on our list is Welcome To, which was created in 2018 and released by Blue Cocker Games and was designed by Benoit Turpin. And Welcome To is the game of suburban design. So in this game, you are developing a... I'm going to say, like, I always picture it being like a 1950s suburbia neighborhood. Um, you've Your sheet has three different rows of houses or streets, which are different lengths. And as the active player flips over three stacks of cards, you will get a combination of a street number and a power. And then each player will pick one of those three combinations and then add the street number to their house and then activate the power that is associated with it. So just at a general standpoint, when filling in street numbers, you have to move from left to right in an ascending order on each street. However, you can also choose to uh, build fences, which will create clusters of homes that will score you points. In addition to scoring points based on the clusters of homes that you've put into each of the streets, there are also three goal cards that are randomized at the beginning of the game, and there's a whole slew of them. So they could be like, get three clusters of three homes, or have a cluster of one home, a cluster of two homes, and a cluster of six homes. If you are the first person to score those things, you will get more points than everybody who comes after you. So you continue the game until I believe the three finishing conditions are a person has every house on their sheet filled in, a person has scored all three of the goals, or a person has made four misplays or for like skips in essence. Yeah, there's a thing you can do that basically says all of these cards are terrible. I'm not going to play any of them. Oh, and it's not a choice. If you can play one, you must. And then after that, you basically count up your points, and the winner of the game is the one with the most. I think this game is excellently designed. I especially love the graphic design on it. 
they have released a bunch of themed boards, so you can play in the Winterlands or the Nuclear Wasteland. Like, it is very apparent that the designers of this game are just having fun with it. I'm on board for that ride. And then there's Welcome to Las Vegas, which obviously has some different rules. Ooh, I haven't seen that one. I'm going to have to go check that out. I know this was certainly not the first Roll and Write I played, but I remember when Mike brought it to us, he was really excited by it. And it was the first one of these that I played that I thought, this is a good game I would actively seek out to play this again. It's well put together. And just lots of interesting, clever little things. I love the way that the random determination for each card is basically the back of one card and the front of the next. And it does give you... And I have not yet figured out what to do with this information while actually playing the game, but because of that design choice, you can look at the back of a card, which has one of the powers on it, and it will give you some hint as to what is coming up next. Yeah, you have limited foreknowledge of what's going to come. So the next game that we had on our list is what I kind of think of as the modern Yahtzee for gamers. It's got elements of stuff that were out of quicks. You can sort of see the Yahtzee antecedents for there, but it's got some neat uh, multiplayer interaction stuff. And it's called That's Pretty Clever, or That's So Clever, or Ganz Schön Clever. It was released in 2018 by Schmidtspiele, designed by Wolfgang Warsch. It's a traditional roll and write in the sense that you have one player who basically rolls a series of colored dice and selects one that he's going to place in one of the scoring regions on his board. And there are different ones. There are ones where you're trying to put certain values into filling out rows and columns, or getting certain numbers of combinations, or arranging things from left to right, from lower to higher, a wide variety of different scoring combinations like you have in Yahtzee. What makes it interesting is that you choose a die, and then any dice that are lower than that number are basically put into a common pool that the other players get to use. So it's like, wow, I could really use this six here, but then everything that isn't a six, all the other players get to place. So you sort of have to carefully choose what you're going to use yourself to score and figure out how many points it's going to be worth. You do, I think, three dice per turn, you know, after re-rolling. The joy of it, if you enjoy this sort of thing, It's figuring out how many points is this going to get me or set me up for versus what am I giving to all the other players out there with their combinations. It's not the sort of thing where you can easily figure out what other players are doing with the dice. So you don't hopefully have a lot of analysis paralysis on that end. But it is a situation where you're going to be making some decisions and hoping they don't come back to bite you. Like I say, it's got that same sort of Yahtzee feel. There's just some more relevant and more meaningful decisions going on than there are in Yahtzee. There is sort of a sequel to it, which is called Twice as Clever or Doppelt So Clever. There's a third one, actually. Oh, crap. What's the third one? That's even more clever than the other one that's more clever? (laughs) Clever Hawk Dry? There's also a few challenges with little kind of puzzle things. Yeah, and basically what the new ones are mostly doing is just adding different categories of scoring things. If you have folks who are familiar with Yahtzee, but you want to give them something a little bit more challenging a little more gamery, uh, I think any of that series is a good choice. Where it really starts to shine is then, you know, as you start reaching scoring thresholds or putting boxes in, in specific spots, you get benefits, right? Like you might be able to get the ability to pick up another die value, or you might be able to fill in one of the boxes anywhere on the board or re-roll your dice or whatever. And like, there's just these, there's these moments where it's like, okay, if I trigger this one, 
which will trigger this one, which will trigger this one, which will trigger this one. And you're just like, you finally, just suddenly in one move, you've filled in like seven boxes. You're like, I am a god. <laughs> yeah. The, the app implementation is really good, too. It used to be my go-to. I'm sitting at the gate at the airport. I need to fill time. Back when airports were, you know, something I went to. <laughs> <sighs> Someday. I guess we can start our transportation block. <laughs> Looking at the next yeah, three games. No. For... First up is Railroad Inc. This one's 2018, published by Horrible Guild and Simon, designed by Hjalmar Hawk and Lorenzo Silva. So Railroad Inc. has a bunch of dice. I think you roll five or six dice. And they have a little, it's kind of like Rivers, Roads, and Rails, the, the roll and write. Basically, your dice have uh, rails and roads. Your grid is an open grid with a bunch of dots around the edge from where you can start tracks and roads and you basically pick the five tiles that are rolled on the various dice and everyone just kind of draws them into their little grid what's the difference between the different colored editions like there's a blue one a red one a green one yeah the really what happens is you get the same base game in each of them and then each of them has a different expansion blue adds rivers red adds i think lava destruction <laughs> you know all those lava trains yeah i think blue is probably the best one because of the rivers roads and rails thing where you actually get three things you've got to wind together and you get points for basically creating large connections large blocks of roads you get a lot of points for connecting the dots outside your grid with rails in a form similar to a metro but you also get points for your know, loops not screwing up you are forced to place you're not allowed to have a railroad meet a road. I can't have my trains careening into oncoming traffic. You can have them go nowhere, though. I mean, <laughs> obviously. But that's it. Then you wrap some scoring on top of it. That's, you know, various kind of a pointsality thing on how many rails you've completed, how many things you've connected, etc. So that does kind of beg the question, are the different additions compatible with one another? They're all the same basic game right. and one expansion. I don't know you could do all the expansions because the dice are different. Interesting. They'll just release a Rainbow Edition later <laughs> on and have everything. I mean, yeah, really. If anything, the stupid part of the game is that, wow, if I want this expansion, I've got to go buy the base game again. Yeah. Yeah, that's not ideal. <laughs> yeah, that's a interesting choice on the production side of things. I don't, I don't exactly see how that makes. <laughs> How that makes your customers happy. Yeah, no, it's greed. So it's interesting. When you mentioned the name of the designer here, uh, particularly Hjalmar Hach, that name sounded familiar. And, you know, he doesn't have a huge list of games designed, but I'm impressed by his range. In addition to Railroad Inc. Damn, I'm looking. He did this. He designed Photosynthesis. We like that game. And he designed King's Dilemma, which oh, is like oh, wow. a oh, really weird. broad spectrum of stuff. <laughs> and Similo. Wow, Those are all uh, relatively recent designs, too. Lorenzo Silva as well. I think they're operating as a team. I mean, they've, they've been busy. Yeah, they've no, busy and they've, they've got some strong hits there. That's, uh, I will, I'll have to keep an eye out on yeah, these like guys. Yeah, like the board game. I mean, <laughs> also, yes, everybody has one. <laughs> I will say, though, I think that Railroad Inc. was probably the first in a line of what I'm going to dub is like the modern rule and write craze that's happened. Possibly true, yeah. Because it also feels like one of those track-building, tile-laying games. Railroad Inc. really does feel like a tile-laying game. And so I think this branches it out into kind of a very different feel. 
And when I played Railroad Inc., it does feel different because it's no, no numbers <laughs> and because you're tangibly trying to connect rails and roads. Right. There is a certain charm to that. And let's face it, we all know that just in of themselves, railroad games have a certain popularity to them. Yeah, I don't know that this is going to have a lot of crossover appeal other than the theme. You don't think so? I don't know. I don't understand railroad gamers. I, I won't pretend to. <laughs> it's never been a thing that has worked for me. Oh, wow. I love railroad games. Well. Have you ever played a really good game of like railway tycoons? It's not my cup of man. I don't know what to tell you. Wow. I, I don't know what's wrong with you. That's just. <laughs> so many things, Frank. So many things are wrong with me. <laughs> wow. We need to do an episode on railroad games. Oh, so God. Well. I'm going to be sick that day. <laughs> I love railroad games. Uh, yes, so you've said. I just don't get it. Especially the, with all the stock trading and everything else. Just, bleh, oh, yeah, thing. those are painful. Th- see? Thank you. Yeah, I don't like the 18xx series, which probably makes me a heretic. Although I do have this game that doesn't really have the stock trading. That's amazing. It's like 18xx minus, 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 minus. Okay. Which I love. So, we should talk about these games. Yeah. Let's move to a different form of public transportation. <laughs> Yeah, I had to buy this game because it's Japanese and it's called Let's Make a Bus Route. Is there a song that goes with it? I feel like there should (laughs) be. No, yeah, really, there should be a song. Can you, in a single word, tell me who published it and who designed it? Sashi. Designed by Sashi, illustrated by Sashi, and published by Sashi and Sashi. (laughs) (laughs) So family operation is what you're telling me. (laughs) Totally, yeah. Just that one guy, he's just like pumping them out. No, I think it's a couple. They do a lot of weird civic holiday Japanese games with this very simple art. The art style is actually kind of cute. For once, this game actually has a little bus meeple, so Jason could be slightly happy. Finally. It's got a a 3D piece. Uh, But in uh, Let's Make a Bus Route, this one cheats. You've got a bunch of cards that basically have numbers on them. Each board interprets that number as a different pattern of track or a different squiggle of so many segments, which can turn, although a couple of them have to be straight line segments. You take turns drawing and extending your bus route. Your bus route can't cross itself, and there are a whole bunch of stops along the way. Basically, you're playing the little kind of scoring salad Depending on how many pensioners, how many workers you pick up, whether you're visiting tourist destinations. And you've also got three secret uh, locations scattered around the board that you get bonus points for connecting. As well as a couple of common bonuses for like the first person to pick up five students or whatever can get some points. Also, you have to track every time you write your bus route alongside someone else's bus route which is why this uses a shared board. The person who has the most times where they've shared a route with somebody else who's already drawn, they'll get a penalty. This is one of the few games with some interaction. There's a lot of asterisks on here. (laughs) So it really couldn't be played with unlimited people. You know, there is some interaction. It still feels like a roll and write. I mean, really, you've got the separate scoring. It's the scoring chart that you're writing down. Even though you're drawing on a board, if you took out the rule with um, basically drawing alongside each other, you could play it separately. I really like the idea of having a roll and write that is, instead of having your own scoring pad that you are basically monitoring your progress on, you are all collectively creating a thing. Like, that idea in of itself, I think, is really interesting. 
And you're doing this in different color markers on the dry erase board or the grease marker board or whatever. And the final board looks like a kind of city map with bus routes drawn all through it. Yeah, it's great. I mean, it looks right. And I get an idea that creating that is pretty much the entire intent of the game. So it has a, an aesthetic choice that's kind of cool. So for reference, Sashi and Sashi is a husband and wife duo in Japan. Sashi, who is the pen name of the game designer, designs all the games, and his wife... Sashi. Nope, Takako. She does all the artwork for the games. They have a game which I want to play now, which is called In Front of the Elevator, which is your goal is to get your family to the front of a series of elevators. <laughs> yes, which I've Looks yet to amazing. find a copy of, and it does. Looks amazing. As long as we're talking about buses... I'm fascinated by buses, of course, as any right-thinking person would be. But I'm more interested, you know, rather than the, the public transportation, I'm interested in sort of private charter buses, uh, especially the ones that are used by rock bands going on tour. Yeah. Wow, that was a really labored segue. You did it. Uh, I did. I made it work. Nailed it. Exactly. So we are going to talk about On Tour, designed in 2019 by Chad Deshawn and released by BoardGameTables.com. They don't just do tables. They also do games. You're playing on either a map of the U.S. or Europe. It's a two-sided board, so you can go either way. Each turn, that person is flipping a handful of cards, three cards, I believe, that basically give you regions of the country. So, like, you know, the southeast, New England, the west coast, whatever it might be. And then they are rolling two ten-sided dice. So you get, like, if you roll a, a two and a four, you have 24 and 42. And basically, you need to write both of those numbers in states in one of the regions that's described on the cards. Um, so you're basically just putting in two numbers each turn in a particular location. The point is to get a way that at the end of the game, you can draw the longest possible route, which is a low number going strictly to a higher number each time. So you're trying to figure out the best way to get these states to combine in such a way that you have a lot of closely linked numbers together. There are certain places that you will get stars, which are bonus cities if you can go through them. They're sort of wild numbers. Rolling doubles, I think, is, is how you generate those. It's been a minute since I've played. But yeah, it's basically, you know, the sort of thing where you are, again, just taking the random generation from whoever is the active player and then trying to find the best thing you can do with that set of numbers and trying to find the ideal route, hoping that you will get the things you want in the future. It's really nicely put together. The components are great. It's a fun game. It goes relatively quickly. As with most of these, it's all simultaneous play, so there's not a lot of downtime. You've got the variety with the two different boards. I think if you're looking for just sort of one game in this genre, it's a good choice. It supports up to eight players with one box, which is nice. So, uh, yeah, recommend it. It's also interesting because Europe and the U.S. are very kind of strategically different. There are a lot more possible connections on the U.S., but in Europe, it's a lot easier to get back and forth across the map, and things are generally closer together in Europe. So it's, um, you know, it's, it's got some interesting variety in there. Plus, it gives you an excuse to play a lot of loud rock music while board gaming, which I think doesn't happen enough. So the last game on our list actually came out in 2020, and that is My City, which was produced by Cosmos and made by Reiner Knizia. I think this one asks the most important question that any game on our podcast can ask it, which is, but what if this were a legacy game? Ooh. I think it just is further evidence that legacy games are the next step in evolution of all board games. <laughs> My City is a 
uh, roll and write game that you actually play over a series of, I believe, 24 games? Yeah, it's like 24 games. And each, I think it is each set of three that might change later in the game, has an envelope that you open that will modify the rules of the game as well as the scoring of your game. And it will also provide you with stickers that you can put onto each of the boards. So every one of them starts out as a basic stack of cards with 24 tiles, one card for each tile. Every player gets a board and a set of tiles. Player flips over the card. Every person places the matching tile. Like I said, the strategy behind where and how you place those tiles may change from game to game. For example, in the first game, you will get points at the end of the game for every tree that you have showing, but you will lose points for every rock that you have showing. So you're incentivized to place them in certain ways. And then the legacy components will change as you go. And that's all I really want to say about that because of spoilers. As in with any good legacy game, play it yourself. Discover. Are the envelopes more or less always locked in a certain order? Like game two, you do this, game three, yeah. you do this. So it's not like there's a branching storyline or anything. Yeah, and we talked about this a little bit in our Legacy episode, where the Legacy components in this game almost feel like a method of introducing new rules. Yeah, it's, it's sort of like um, not quite a teaching mechanic, maybe. but While it is a teaching mechanic, it is also, I think, a like, hey, what if every time we sat down to play a roll-and-write game, we played a slightly different roll-and-write game? Eh, okay. I'll buy that. In addition to that, this one also has the Tetronimo. All the buildings have been artfully twisted and turned into different square-based shapes. So you are doing a little bit of that Tetris thinking that we talked about with things like Fits and Bits. There are certain rules, like you have to play your first building adjacent to the river, and then you have to place every other building coming off of that building. And you can't place buildings across the river. Right. Yeah. You can't build on mountains, you can't build in the forests. And again, all of those rules could and probably will be subject to change at some point. When I saw Legacy, that went into my immediate buy pile, mm-hmm. so now I just need <laughs> someone to play it with. Aww. Because Joe won't play it with me. It's a roll and right game. Joe, he you're a monster. <laughs> to be fair, he's never asked, so he's just saving the game for his real friends. We know how this all works. I think circa 2018, maybe even a little bit before that, there has just been this increasing rise in popularity among the general board gaming community in roll and write games. In this description, we've barely scratched the surface. When you get into the print and play community, it's just dozens and dozens of roll and writes. There are competitions devoted to roll and writes. Definitely a thing. You can potentially have like a huge tournament. You could run like a hundred people at a time through with some of these games, right? Exactly. There's a throughput piece to it as well. I've also seen them done on things like Twitch. I've seen this most recently with Railroad Inc., where somebody just fixed their camera onto the, what is it, cards in Railroad Inc., and anybody that wanted to play along with them could get their copy at home and done. Yeah, it really lends itself well to stuff like that. I've certainly seen people running huge games of things like Welcome To over a Twitch stream or a YouTube channel. But yeah, anyway, that is the list of roll-and-write games that we wanted to talk about today. 
As mentioned, there are a bazillion others out there, so we would certainly be interested to hear if you have any particular favorites or things that you think do cool stuff. If you have ideas about future episodes, I'm not saying we're running out of ideas because we got a lot of tabs on this spreadsheet, but it's always interesting to hear if people have good ideas. Because some of those ideas on tabs are not good. Yes, you're absolutely right. <laughs> or if you want to hear a Yahtzee clone episode, write us. Especially if you don't want to see a Yahtzee clone episode, please, please let us know. Us. <laughs> uh, I mean, join our Patreon or you will be getting a Yahtzee clone episode. For $5 a month, you get a Yahtzee clone episode. For $10 a month, you don't get a Yahtzee clone episode. <laughs> but yeah, that's about all we have here. So as always, everybody stay safe. Your feedback is always welcome and appreciated. iTunes reviews are good. Tell your friends and we will talk to you again next month. Bye. We hope you have enjoyed this episode of The Ascent of Board Games, which is protected by the Creative Commons license. Opening and closing music is Evening Melodrama by Kevin MacLeod via Incompetech.com. Full details can be found at AscentofBoardGames.com. Please share, like, subscribe, review, and comment on this podcast. And thank you for listening. Do you know for Kyle's music? It'll work really well. Is that what that was? Okay, I couldn't tell.